Good morning. Um, yeah, it was uh, tough dropping Will off. Um, you know, he misses a lot of things here at home. I talked to him last night. I said, so what's your first impression? He said, uh, dorm food is just phenomenal. <laughs> I <laughs> didn't, <laughs> didn't, uh, uh, Man, once Becky gets that cookbook, the lookout. Um, one other side note before I get into the lesson. Um, occasionally, I, I uh, occasionally, I am a book fanatic. I love books. Um, I buy books. Uh, when I was growing up, very formative age, mom uh, was manager for a bookstore in Memphis, Tennessee, and Catherine and I, Holly wasn't born yet, but Catherine and I used to go up to the bookstore all the time. And uh, uh, that's where we hung out in the back room. So I'm sure a lot of it's just uh, something I grew up with and it brings back memories. Um, but I have a tendency to um, get a lot of books. And I get book catalogs all the time. I got, I, I, there's one that comes out. It looks like a little newspaper, something bargain books or something. And you have to wade through it because there are a whole bunch. And I ordered some that seemed interesting to me. I had never heard of Harper's Encyclopedia of Bible Life. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll buy that and see if it's any good. And it came in last week. I had a chance. I've made it through about half of it. Different people have written different chapters. <clears throat> and none of them, all of that noteworthy uh, to me, at least as far as who they are. The original writers um, uh, are fairly noteworthy. But as I've looked through it, there's this one fellow who's written parts of it that I don't care much for his perspective on some things. But uh, everyone else is pretty good. And this was like a real cheap book. Uh, what it is, it's just basically a look at everyday life uh, uh, for people back in the Bible times. And I brought it because it's got a couple of pictures today that if we have time, I'll throw up on the overhead for us to look at. Uh, but it's a very useful book. Anybody that's interested, uh, talk to me and I'll try and get you information. Uh, you know, it's, it wasn't an expensive book. It's not a scholastic book. And I mean that as a, a compliment in the sense that it, it's not written where you've got to have great uh, a training before you read it. But yet it is a scholastic book in the sense that its information is very informative and uh, uh, seems mostly very biblically based, uh, save uh, uh, for one chapter that, that, uh, uh, where the, the writer has a different set of preconceptions that he comes into it with than, than uh, I do and I think most of us would. Anyway, uh, now to class. Um, here's the challenge for today's class. Oh, Mark has lessons. Anybody missing a lesson? This is a honking big lesson this week. I mean, this is uh, 14 pages. I dictated it before Becky and I left for college on Wednesday. I told Jan, just type it Thursday, email it to me. I'll pick it up while we're in New York dropping Will off. I'll make my edits and changes and get it back to you to make copies. Um, she was still typing on it uh, Friday night at 6 o'clock. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, I did my edits uh, uh, yesterday, and Philip was gracious enough to get up early this morning and copy it. Uh, so it's a long lesson, but uh, uh, if you grab it, it's shorter than uh, the actual Bible we're reading. So, you know, <clears throat> it's still like the Reader's Digest condensed version of 1 Kings 12 through 22. Um, here is the challenge for today. Uh, in addition to absorbing the knowledge, which is one of the things we're about in this class, in addition to that, we're going to go through a number of characters in 1 Kings, and they are characters. Uh, try to find yourself in some of these people. 
we live a different life than they lived then, but we are still the same people. Uh, uh, we are still children of Adam living in a fallen world, trying to understand our life, trying to eke out our existence. Hopefully, we try to live it to the praise and glory of God, and we live in relationship with Him. But as you go through, as we go through this material today, my challenge to you is to try to find yourself in some of these characters and let God speak to you in how you need to live your life differently. It's a, it's a very helpful way for us to make it through this portion of Kings. The way we're going to do it, I'm going to give you some brief background of where we've been so far in the class, and then we're going to go through the story, and I'm going to talk to you about the story in 1 Kings from 12, chapter 12 through the end of the book, hopefully, and then we've got some points for you to take home at the end. So let's get started with the background. Um, this doesn't work. There it goes. It works. I don't. Um, the purpose of this class, remember, is to give us the core data we need to be biblically literate people. We do not want to be biblically illiterate. It is our desire to be biblically literate. If you're new to the class, we started in Genesis, and we've gone through 1 Kings. We talk about where the books came from, how we got the Bible. Once we hit the New Testament, we'll go into a little more depth about how did we get these writings, and how do we know that they're ours, and, and things of that nature. If you have background catch-up to do, or if you've got family or friends who might be interested, our website's www.biblical-literacy.com. And uh, Eric and Philip have done a great job at, at uh, keeping uh, the website up and going quite well. Um, we're, we've made it this far. We've still got poetry to cover. We've got a little more history to cover in 2 Kings. We'll look at Chronicles and a few other history books. But get excited for the poetry. It's going to be a poetry class you love. There's poetry in the Bible. We'll deal with that. We've still got to cover the prophets, and we'll cover them. Uh, you've got major prophets. You've got minor prophets, and those will be fun to talk about. We're going to talk about the Apocrypha, which is in the Catholic Bible. It's not in the Protestant Bible. Why not? When did it leave? When did it come in? What's in it anyway? And why isn't it in there? So we will talk about that for a class, uh, maybe two classes. And then we hit the New Testament, and uh, with that, uh, we will work our way through the New Testament, and we will finish this class, and uh, uh, your, your term will be over. There will be one final exam. It will, no. Um, first Kings, then. Let's get into it. Um, <clears throat> Samuels and Kings, um, those books that go together, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, they chart the history of the Israeli monarchy. They start with the first king. And, and they don't do it as a history book we talked about last week. Instead, what they do is they try and convey, here's what happened, and here's why it's important if we understand the framework of God in this relationship. What was important to the Israelites and what should be important to you and me is not so much, here's the history of my life, or here's the history of my family, or here's the history of my people, but rather, here is how my history has interfaced with the Lord. And here's what God was doing. And here's how I was ignoring God. When you talk to your children about your life, my dad had a birthday, I understand, from Holly that uh, uh, we were gone, but, but they played uh, Daddy Bill trivia over lunch. And uh, uh, our kids, at least, were surprised to find out some things 
that they didn't know about my dad, that I would take for granted they'd know, you know, how many siblings he had, uh, his, his parents' names, because my grandparents on that side died before my kids were born. And, and there are some core things like that that they did not know. It's important to know our history, but as we convey that to ourselves and our children, let's convey it with a sense of here's how God's worked in our lives. Let's keep God in the center of our history. That's going to be the theme that we see throughout the historical stories we look at today. We saw it with Saul, we saw it with David, we saw it with Solomon, and here's where we're starting. We're at the end of Solomon's reign. Solomon was King David's son, the third king that Israel had. As Solomon was drawing near the end of his reign, he had a labor force because he was doing projects. He was a constant project king. He was rebuilding this, or he was building that, or he was making this, and he made the temple, and he made a palace, and he's rebuilding part of the walls, or actually finishing part of the walls of Jerusalem. And he has labor forces. And one of the forces was from the tribe of Joseph. And from that tribe of Joseph, uh, um, Solomon put in charge a fellow named Jeroboam. Now at the risk of sounding like Mr. Rogers, would you please say that with me? Can you say Jeroboam? Jeroboam. Sure, I knew you could. Um, Jeroboam is the head of the labor force. And Jeroboam is walking home from work one day when a prophet named Ahijah wearing a brand new cloak, comes to see Jeroboam. And the two of them are alone in the countryside and no one's around. And Ahijah says, I have a word from Yahweh for you. A word from Yahweh. Now, it is going to be very critical in today's lesson that we all remember um, uh, that the Bible uses several words for God. And the word Yahweh... Am I... Well, that's just useless there. That's better. The word Yahweh, which I spell Y-A-W, uh, I spell, that's the way uh, anybody spells it, if they spell it right. Yahweh is Y, I say that because that's not the way Jan spelled it when she typed my lesson, but we fixed that last night. Yahweh is, is the name that God gave himself to Moses, or that God gave to Moses when Moses said on the mountain in front of the burning bush, they're going to want to know your name. You know, they're down there in Egypt with all these gods. What's your name? And God says, tell them Yahweh, Yahweh. I am who I am is the way it's translated. Yahweh is a special name. It, it denotes a personal concept of a specific being, not just generic God. You can use God for anybody. Paul talks about in the New Testament people whose God is their appetite. Okay, So it's not just a generic God. It's a specific name of the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, Yahweh. And when we... Uh, actually, <laughs> this is humorous. That's not the way you spell it. Um, it's got an H in there. Boy, humility. Um, <laughs> sorry, uh, but Jan did get it wrong too. Now, the... Uh, uh, when we, how do we know when that word is used in our Bibles? A lot of you will remember this, but everyone needs to know it and be reminded of it for our lesson today. Your Bible translator, that's right, does it, translates it Lord, but does it with capital letters. And the O-R-D part of Lord are smaller capital letters than the capital L. But um, that word Lord is different from the Hebrew word that's translated Lord when they write with lowercase letters, L-O-R-D. The L-O-R-D with lowercase letters, Lord, can just mean any Lord, like David, my Lord. Or, you know, like a, a, a knight would bow down before the king and say, my Lord and king. Okay? 
that type of Lord is a general Lord. But the specific Yahweh, which is the name of God Himself, you know when it's in your Bible because it's all capitals. A big L and smaller capitals, O-R-D. Uh, it will be important as we go through the lesson today, so um, hang on to that knowledge. Well, Ahijah prophesies. He says to Jeroboam, look, let me tell you what Yahweh, the Lord, has said. And, Je and Ahijah takes off his cloak, brand new cloak, rips it into 12 pieces. There were 12 tribes of Israel. That's the symbolism there. And Ahijah takes 10 of those pieces and says, God's going to give you 10 of the tribes. He's going to rip the kingdom out of Solomon's hands just as I've ripped this cloak. Because Solomon has worshipped idols late in his life. Solomon followed the Lord early, late in his life, influenced, I think, in part by the foreign wives and his own prosperity and his big head. Um, Solomon uh, uh, starts worshipping and idolatrizing with foreign gods. So... Um, Ahijah says, you're going to get ten tribes. And Ahijah goes a step further. Ahijah says, if you will follow the ways of the Lord like King David did, you, Jeroboam, will have a dynasty like King David's. How many people have heard of King David? Everybody. How many people have heard of King Jeroboam? <laughs> you see, you got an idea. He didn't do it, don't you? Nobody's heard of him. If he had only followed the Lord... We'd be saying, oh yeah, King Jeroboam, a dynasty like King David. Uh, that's not what happened. It's going to be a 10-2 split um, on the tribes. Two, Yahweh is going to leave with Solomon's descendants out of respect for King David um, and because of God's promise to David. Um, and then he goes a step further and says, I'm not going to do this till after Solomon dies. Um, that's out of respect for King David. Um, Philip, this thing is like really in a bad mood. We're going manual, guys. Um, so, somehow Solomon finds out about this. The text is clear that there was no one there but Ahijah and uh, Jeroboam. I suspect that Ahijah the prophet did not go telling everybody, look what's going to happen. I think what most likely happened is Jeroboam started talking. Because somehow Solomon finds out about it and decides the only expeditious thing to do is go ahead and kill this guy. Um, uh, so Jeroboam flees to Egypt where he takes uh, uh, protection under the Pharaoh named Shishak. Uh, he will come out later in the story. And Jeroboam stays there until Solomon dies. Solomon does die. And once Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes king. Now, this is good. We got Jeroboam, and now we have Rehoboam. Okay? Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. He becomes king, and when he becomes king, he goes up to a town north of Jerusalem in uh, uh, the northern part of Israel, and in that town, he is being anointed king for those people. Jeroboam's heard Solomon died. Jeroboam comes back from Egypt knowing the coast is clear. And Jeroboam with the leaders from Israel go up to Rehoboam. And they say, hey, buddy, here's the deal. Your dad got really rough on us in his old age. He put a labor requirement on us where he made us his workers that was just uh, uh, offensive. It was way too heavy. And he put a yoke on us um, of taxation and things like that, that that was way too heavy. So we want you to go ahead and make a campaign promise right now 
that you will reduce taxes and reduce the, the draft into your service. And Rehoboam says, well, let me take three days to think about it. That's a pretty good thing to do, don't you think? Don't make a decision. If you have time, you need to think about it. So Jeroboam goes and he asks for the counsel of the, quote, elders. And by that, the text says, these were the men who counseled his father Solomon. So he goes to those older men who had been good established counselors of Solomon and says, what do you think I ought to do? The older counselors say, well, what you ought to do is exactly what the people have asked. Reduce the yoke, reduce the, the burden that, that you have put on, that your father put on them. In that way, you serve the people, and the people will be your servants forever. Ever. The text says Rehoboam didn't like that counsel. And so he says, dismissed, leave. Okay, I'm not doing that. Now, I need somebody else to tell me what I should do. I don't understand getting counsel when you've already made up your mind. But that's what he's doing. I say I don't understand that. I have friends who do that all the time. They, they, and maybe I do it too and I'm blind to it. We want to hear what we want to hear and we'll just line them up until someone finally tells us what we want to hear and then that's the person who's right. Um, that's basically what Rehoboam was doing. So Rehoboam then calls in the young guys he grew up with, the kids, his buddies. And the kids, of course, already know, his buddies already know that he's deep six, the old guys, because the old guys said, yes, lighten the burden. And so he says to the young guys, what do you think I ought to do to this request, lighten labor and taxes? Three days to think about it. By the way, these were three wasted days. He did not do anything very good. He got the counsel from the old guys that said, do it. He rejected it. He goes to his friends. And I love this. His friends say, here's what you need to tell them. I've reproduced it here. You tell the people, hey, you want me to lighten what my dad did? My little finger is thicker than my dad's waist. That's pretty pungent. I mean, these guys, uh, the Bible is not loaded with uh, politeness in some places. It's pretty blunt. And uh, that's a pretty blunt expression. Um, uh, you know, you think about taunting people. Uh, that's, there is some great trash talk in the Bible. Um, you know, now Lewis has been on a diet. And for me to say my little finger is bigger than his waist, well, he's still got a ways to go. But, <laughs> you know, the, 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 premise, the premise there is my dad, and, and this was the added statement, my dad may have whipped you with whips. I will whip you with scorpions. So this is the advice that he's given from his friends, and he takes that advice. It was a bad move. The people were not receptive, and the kingdom divides. The northern kingdom says, what do we have to do with you idiots from the south anyway? And unlike the United States where the south seceded from the union, in Israel it was the north that succeeded, seceded, seceded. They didn't succeed, ultimately they uh, demised, uh, but uh, they seceded from the south, and we have here a map of the divided kingdom up on the overhead. And you see, this is Jerusalem. Judah was in the south. This area that I'm, I'm, bordering, I'm doing here, bordered by Philistia, Moab, Edom, the Dead Sea. Israel was to the north. And uh, ten tribes went to the north. Judah, the tribe of Judah, and actually sort of two tribes went to the south. 
Um, the Bible calls it both different ways, but uh, it became known as one tribe, the tribe of Judah to the south. And the south was ruled from Jerusalem by Rehoboam. The north was ruled uh, by, uh, initially I think in Shechem, eventually in, from Samaria, um, but uh, the north was ruled by Jeroboam. Now remember, Jeroboam had a promise from God. The promise was, if you live and conduct yourself and take our nation the way King David did, your lineage and your dynasty will be just as great. Jeroboam uh, was thick-headed or stubborn or dumb or sinful or a combination of the above because he didn't do it. I mean, he had it clearly told him. Do you know what he did instead? He thinks in, in terms uh, that are very worldly. He says, wait a minute. Right now, everybody goes to Jerusalem to worship at this beautiful temple Rehoboam's daddy Solomon built. And this is potential problem because these people are going to go there and they're going to say, oh yeah, he's not that bad a king and his dad did make the temple. So as long as people go to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, I, I, they're not going to be loyal to me. It's just a matter of time till I lose them. And I'm going to lose my kingship. So he put his faith in the earthly things he could see, not in the promises that God had given him through God's word, the prophet. He put his faith in the earthly things he could see. Remember our challenge here, try to find yourself in this. Put his faith in the earthly things he could see and understand and not in the very clear promises that he had from God. And that was a mistake. How did he do it? He decided, well, hey... Instead of letting people go down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, I'll make up idols. I'll make up idols. This guy did not read his Old Testament. I will make idols. I'll set one up in the north, way up in Dan. Dan, if we went back to the map, is up in the northern part of Israel, way up here. And we'll set one up in Bethel, which is down near the south. So we've got north and south covered. And, uh, um, you know, people can worship there. And he goes a step further. He says, and what's this rule about the Levites being priests? That's not useful. We'll make anybody a priest who wants to be one. You want to be a priest? We don't care where you came from. We don't care your lineage. It doesn't matter what God set up. This is our religion. And, uh, you know, this is it. And uh, uh, you want to be a priest, we'll make you a priest. Um, well, this does not bode well with God. And God sends a warning. He sends a prophet up from Judah. And the prophet goes to where the king is about to offer a sacrifice on this altar at Bethel. And the prophet says, oh, altar, altar, um, you will be destroyed. There's going to come one from the seed of David named Josiah who will come here. And he's going to actually not only destroy this altar, but he's going to kill all the priests that aren't real priests that are pretending to be priests. Jeroboam does not like this prophecy. It's not really fitting in with his plan. So he reaches out his hand and says, seize that man. But as he does so, his hand shrivels back. And he does not have a hand that he can pull back anymore. And he realizes the problem and he looks at the prophet and says, can you ask God to fix this? The prophet says, sure. And the prophet prays and God heals the hand. Jeroboam then says to the prophet, hey, you want to you grab some lunch? Uh, that's what it says. He says, would you like to eat lunch? I'll give you a present. And the prophet says, no, I'm under instructions from God not to eat till I get back. I've got to go back, and I'm leaving. So he leaves. Another old prophet hears about it, 
lies to, a, to this prophet, says, come on back and eat with me. God said it's okay. Prophet does so. Prophet dies. He shouldn't have disobeyed God either. Kind of bad to be given the warning, don't disobey God or something bad will happen to you. And then turn around and disobey God yourself. Um, but anyway, that's what happened. Um, Jeroboam now is stuck. He's in trouble. He's got to figure out what to do. He's, he knows that there's this impending doom, but he just blithely goes on happy with his life anyway until his son Abijah gets sick. When Abijah gets sick, Jeroboam says, we got to get a word from, from, from God. We need a prognosis. We need a doctor to tell us what's going to happen. Well, they didn't have good doctors then like we have now, and so he couldn't go see one of our doctors. Instead, he says to his wife, you know, there was this old prophet named Ahijah who told me I was going to get this job to start with. He's been pretty reliable on his predictions. The problem is, I haven't really been doing this job the way he told me I was supposed to. So I'm not really comfortable going to him saying, hey, tell me what the word of the Lord is on my son. You go, wife. But there's still a problem. I'm just thinking God's not real happy with me right now based on all these prophecies I've been getting and what I'm doing. So I think we need to trick the prophet and God and when you go, disguise yourself so they don't know that you're my wife. Just go and say, uh, I got a sick son, and it'll work fine. The guy's blind at this point in his life anyway. So uh, Jeroboam's wife, she gets on her disguise. She goes to find Jer uh, the prophet Ahijah. And Ahijah, this just slays me that people are like this. And, and it's so bizarre to me that their logic is so warped it scares me to death that mine is just as warped and I'm just not seeing it in my life. Um, it's kind of like the misspelling of Yahweh, you know, I just I missed it. So um, this woman thinks that she can disguise herself and that God is not going to see who she really is. But God's going to know enough to be able to tell her what's going to happen with her son. You know, do, do you ever go to God for favors or, or requests and pretend to be something you're not in the process? I think a lot of us do. I think there's reason that our prayers to God need to start out with a confession of sin and guilt. I think there's a lot of room to say, God, I'm not worthy. I come to you through Jesus Christ. Don't just tag that at the end of your prayer. Put it at the start sometimes because our whole attitude needs to not be, oh God, look how good I am. Now help me with this. Our attitude needs to be, God, I'm not worthy to even be talking to you, but you have a relationship with me anyway. By the blood of Jesus Christ, I come to you and say, please help. I'm desperately in need of you. You see the difference in the attitude there? She goes, she's pretending to be someone she's not. God is not fooled, neither is his blind prophet Ahijah. Ahijah says, why did you come dressed up like someone else? I know who you are, God knows who you are. And oh, by the way, God remembers what he told Ahi uh, Jeroboam at the get-go. Namely, he's going to be wiped out and so are all of his kids. You don't have to worry, the whole lineage is being gone because you're worshiping idols. You're not worshiping the Lord. So you go back and the day you step over the, the threshold into your town, into your house, your son's going to die. Oh, this there is some good news. He's the only good thing in your house in the eyes of God, so at least he'll get a decent burial. But as for everybody else, they're dead. It's just a matter of time. So she goes back, um, her son dies, um, and we, we oh, I, I left this out. In the process of him 
of Ahijah telling the wife of Jeroboam this news, he speaks the voice of God. And, and the way he says it in chapter 14, verse 9, he says this about God. God is speaking here. He says, you have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. How many times do we take God and instead of putting him in front of us, put him behind our back so we don't have to see him, we don't have to talk about him, we don't have to deal with him. We can do the task at hand and let God be behind our back, out of our sight. You put God in front of you, you can't work in the shadows because you have the light. If you put God behind you, then you can do your shadow work because the light's not shining where you are. A powerful statement there in the passage. Um, meanwhile, down in the south, see the book of Kings, it flip-flops between the north and the south, the north and the south, so you've got to keep these names. You've got this guy named Rehoboam, Rehoboam. Rehoboam, oh, leave that by the way, the son did die, and we'll come back to Jeroboam in a few minutes. Um, Rehoboam's in the south. And he's got problems with Pharaoh Shishak. That was the Pharaoh that gave protection to uh, Jeroboam. Well, the Pharaoh Shishak comes up and decides, hey, weak king now, weak kingdom, only has one or two of the 12 tribes. I think it's time for a raid on Solomon's treasury. Let's see if he really had all of that good stuff everybody said he had. So uh, he comes, he raids it, and the scripture says he even takes the gold shields it reminds me of Jesus saying, why store up for yourself treasures on earth? Oh, those gold shields, they were so proud of them. Rehoboam wants to do something to, uh, to fix the problem. So after the gold shields get stolen, he, he makes some new ones, but he doesn't have the gold. So he makes them out of bronze. Well, it doesn't take an Olympian medalist to know the difference between gold and bronze. You know, it was a major step down. That's how far the kingdom was falling. And you just see it falling and falling and falling as people fall away from God. Um, they, they, they do. So Rehoboam, he's the evil king. It says it. He's the evil king and he dies. And when he dies, he has his son Abijah who's king. This is a different Abijah than the son that was sick up north. Um, it was a common name like Job. And uh, uh, the son Abijah is a king for three years. Then he dies. And his son Asa becomes king. I put king, king in the PowerPoint because I was asleep. But it's really just king once. <laughs> um, yeah, it says king, king, doesn't it? Um, but I will tell you that Asa was a good king. And uh, Asa followed the Lord. And, and he was the first king to do it since Solomon in his early days or since David in his uh, uh, whole kingdom. And he dies after a long reign. Scripture seems to imply the reason he reigned so long was because he followed the Lord and he was blessed with everything except feet. His feet were diseased when he died. It's in there. You need to know it. That's a good Bible trivia question. Who died with diseased feet? Asa. Is a feet. Never mind. I don't have time. All right. Um, the the yeah, I was uh, okay. North. Meanwhile, let's go back north. Jeroboam's son. You remember he had died. Jeroboam himself dies too, and his other son Nadab Nadab becomes king. He's king for two years. He's evil. He dies. He gets killed by this guy named Basha. 
who isn't of the line of Jeroboam, and the prophecy came true. Jeroboam's whole family's now out of the king business. They're gone. They're destroyed. Basha is king. He's evil. He's king for 24 years. And then he uh, uh, dies, and his son Elah becomes king. Elah's king for two years. He's evil. He gets killed when he's drunk by this guy named Zimri. Zimri kills him. Then Zimri says, I'm king. Zimri was evil too. You know, he just killed the king. That's a pretty good indicator. Uh, Zimri is evil. He lasts for seven days. And uh, um, he's an evil king for seven days. Then he gets, uh, uh, was going to get killed. He burns the palace around him. He commits suicide. Are you seeing a pattern here? These guys aren't following the Lord too good. And then Omri becomes king. He's king for 12 years. He's big time popular in the secular world. They even, we've got from some Assyrian tablets, which was a, a big kingdom north of there, archaeologists have found uh, uh, references to the reign of Omri. Omri uh, builds up uh, Samaria for his capital. He does all these big worldly things. And in fact, the Assyrians start calling Israel Omri land. It's almost... Opry land, but it was Omri land. And uh, uh, so he's the king of Omri land for 12 years. The Bible doesn't give him much of anything, though. He doesn't do much, except he gives birth to the worst king in the history of Israel. And this is a king um, that uh, one writer refers to him as the Hitler of Israel. And I thought, ah, I had that in the outline. I took it out of the outline because that's kind of... Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more, you know, he was um, in some ways uh, their, their Hitler. Um, let's uh, talk about why. He has a, this king's name is Ahab. And Ahab marries a woman who's not a Jew named Jezebel. And um, they, they do ethnic cleansing, except it wasn't as much an ethnic cleansing. It was a religious cleansing. They say anybody that worships Yahweh is to be killed. Think about that. That's, that's, that's what they did. And they took the prophets of Yahweh and they started just methodically killing anybody. And, and what they did instead is they said, you come worship our gods. Our gods, um, um, Baal is the, the male god that they worship. B-A-A-L, Baal or Baal. You can say it either way. Um, Y'all are familiar with the word Baal, right? Uh, Baal is a word that means Lord. Um, um, and Baal is who they were to worship. And, and Baal as the Lord they worship, and then they, they had a feminine deity too. Um, she was worshipped in a number of Canaanite areas as variations of the name. Uh, the NIV calls her name Asherah, and you will hear about Asherah poles that were constructed, and they were... Uh, um, not like a totem pole, but because it didn't have the carvings of a totem pole, but pretty close. And these would be built on the high places with the altars for Baal or, or Baal, uh, if you're from Lubbock. And uh, um, um, they tried to kill all of the, the people who worshiped Yahweh as God. Um, now, Elijah enters the scene. Elijah's name, um, uh, there, Elijah's name is... Spelled E-L-I-J-A-H. Um, Hebrew didn't have a J. That's a Y in Hebrew. Eliyah in Hebrew. Eli, um, does anybody in here remember what E-L means? E-L is God. Yes, it's short. Elohim is the plural. 
um, uh, form of it, even though it's singular. Sorry, um, I digress. But E-L means God. If you add I at the end in Hebrew, it means mine. Okay? So Eli means my God. And Yah is short for Yahweh. Yahweh. So Elijah means Yahweh is my God. Okay? So this is the man that enters the scene when all of the people who believe in Yahweh are being destroyed because Baal is supposed to be God and Ashtera the goddess. So Ahab, in the process of killing everybody who believes in Yahweh, now is approached by a man who says, Hello, Yahweh is my God. That's my name and I'm claiming it. The uh, reaction is not a favorable one. Uh, Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who... It, scripture seems to indicate wore the pants in the family at least 80% of the time. Um, um, oh, by the way, that's a picture, uh, a sculpture of Elijah. It may not be accurate because it was done about 3,000 years after he was dead, but it gives you the view of what one guy thought he looked like. Um, Elijah says, it's not going to rain here. It's not going to rain here until I say it's going to rain because God's declared a drought. And by God, I mean Yahweh. So you go talk to Baal all you want. You go talk to Ashtoreth all you want. It doesn't matter what they say because Yahweh has declared it's not going to rain. And with that, Elijah leaves. Goes into hiding. Won't rain until I say so. See ya. And he's gone. While he's in hiding, uh, he gets fed by ravens for a while. And then after that, he goes to a widow of Zarephath who doesn't have anything. He says, feed me. She says, all I've got, I've got a son, but all I've got is a little bit of oil and a little bit of meal. If I feed you, we're dead. He says, God's not going to let you die. Feed me anyway. So she makes it for him. And, and Yah, uh, Elijah says, Yahweh will see that you never run out of food. And her jar of meal and her jar of olive oil never emptied. God replenished it constantly. A miracle of sustenance to a woman who acted out of faith as opposed to the, a poor widow woman who acted out of faith, as opposed to these high and mighty kings who would not honor God. Um, we don't have time for the picture. Um, and, oh, also while he's there, her son dies. And um, it says that... Uh, um, what time is class really over now to this new schedule? 12.05? Okay. Um, we're not going to finish this lesson today. <laughs> But we're going to get through some good material along the way. I want to tell you, I mean, this is worth talking about. If you look at the scripture, it says that Elijah was able to stay in the widow's house in the upper room. Now, what's useful, and there was a nice little picture in this uh, thing here. Um, let's see if I can get this picture up here. Um, here is a, a picture of just kind of the roof of, of a modern home over in Israel. But the homes were built much the same way. What they would do, and we know this archaeologically, this is the, the, the stucco-type mud uh, sides of the home. And over the top, they would lay beams. Um, I think they were cypress beams if you were rich and sycamore beams if you were poor. But they'd lay these beams and then across the beams uh, go in the opposite direction, or perpendicular I should say, they'd lay a bunch of more smaller pieces of timber and on top of that they'd put a bunch of mud and a bunch of grass and weeds and, and straw and it would cake over. They even had big rollers they would roll on it. And that was their roof 
Okay, um, Israel had very clear seasons of rain and very clear seasons of dryness. And during the dry periods especially, the roof was the favored place to be. These homes were not um, luxurious. They did not have uh, Al and Mary Nell to build their homes. They, they were, they were uh, um, just big old mud walls with small windows for safety. Um, they didn't really have any kind of air circulation. They'd keep the animals inside at night, so they stunk. They were dim, dim, dim. They did not have much light in them because they didn't have electricity. So you, these homes were, and, and they were like basically one or two rooms max. Okay? So the home's not a really great place to be spending your time, especially during the hot summer months. The favorite place to go was up on the roof. And up on the roof, what they would do is they would construct temporary walls. They'd take like grass and all, and they'd weave it together to make a, a little wall structure. But you've got the air up there, you've got the sunlight. And do you know what the Bible word language for this little uh, constructed rooftop temporary housing was? An upper room. That'll come in important in the New Testament because that's where Jesus had the Last Supper. It's in an upper room. It's a room on top of the house that's just kind of built onto the roof. That's where Elijah was staying. So when the widow's son dies, Elijah says, don't worry about it. Uh, God's in control here. Yahweh is my God. And he takes the boy up and prays, and God brings the boy back to life. It's a resurrection miracle. Um, you'll find no one in the Bible that does miracles on the par of three guys. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Right? And those three will meet to discuss this issue, or whatever they did discuss, on a mount we call the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, right before Jesus dies. It's significant that we understand this is Elijah who has already brought a son back from, or a child back, a boy back from the dead, that meets with Jesus before Jesus goes to die. Um, anyway, um, um, dead son, the upper room. Uh, there is Elijah bringing the boy down afterwards, and um, um, Elijah is. Uh, Okay, we can, we can, this material is so good. I'm in a real bind here. We've got five minutes. I don't want you to miss the points to take home, but I don't want you to miss this material. And I'm willing to, to, to ease into the points to take home right now, but I'm afraid some of you may not come back next week. And this is really good stuff, so you need to come and you need to bring your friends. Uh, I got to tell you, we're going to do it. We're just going to, points to take home will go brief. I got to tell you what happens on Mount Carmel. After a few years of drought, Ahab comes down and beats this guy named Obadiah who also fears the Lord. Says, Obadiah, go tell Ahab, here I am. Obadiah says, man, everybody's been looking everywhere for you. You know, you got to make it rain. If I go get him, I'm going to bring him back. You'll probably be gone and then I'm going to get killed. And Ahab says, I mean, Elijah says, no, 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 I'll be here. I want to talk to him. Bring him on down. So Obadiah goes and gets King Ahab. Uh, Ahab says, well, there you are, you troublemaker. That's the scripture. That's what he calls him. And, and Elijah says, you're calling me a troublemaker. This only happened because of what you've done. You're the one who is killing everybody that says Yahweh and instead putting Baal everywhere. I'm not the troublemaker. You're the troublemaker. And uh, Ahab says, no, nah, you're the troublemaker. And Elijah says, enough of this. Here's the deal. You get all your prophets of Baal. You get all your prophetesses of, of uh, uh, Ashtarah. And you meet me on Mount Carmel. And we'll have the showdown. Oh, he says, okay. And, oh, by the way, invite all of your friends and neighbors. Get the people there. This is going to be something else. So they go to Mount Carmel. 
and it's Elijah versus 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and, and this story cannot be improved uh, upon. Uh, I would only take away from it if I didn't give you some of the text. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read you some of the story because uh, uh, it's so good. Ahab sent word throughout all Israel. He assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people. And Elijah says, let's put it up here. Hold on. This, this is, because there's stuff here you got to get. Okay. Um, all right. Can you all read that okay? Okay. I'm, I'm up here. Um, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If, who's that? Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now the people, they say nothing. You know, you can see them kind of standing there with their arms crossed. First of all, who wants to stand up and say, Yay, Yahweh, when there are 850 prophets of the other guy and only one for Yahweh, and the king's there looking on too and has already said he's going to kill anybody who worships Yahweh. So, you know, you got a little momentum you got to get going here. So here's how Elijah goes about it. Elijah says to the people, I am the only one of Yahweh's prophets left. But Baal has 450, so get us two bulls. The prophets of Baal can choose one for themselves. They get their pick, let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but here's the key, they cannot set fire to it. Okay? I will prepare the other bull, I'll put it on the wood, and I won't set fire to mine either. Then you call on the name of your God, I'll call on the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. All the people said, well, that's a good idea. That's what it says, isn't it? Yeah, what you say is good. It's a good idea. So Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, choose your bull, pick your weapon, prepare it first since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull given them, they prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to uh, taunt them. <laughs> I love this. This is like Charles Barkley would have done. Um, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. He says, hey, shout louder. Surely he's a god. Maybe he's deep in thought. Or he's busy. Or traveling. That must be it. Maybe he's sleeping and you need to wake him up. So they shouted louder. And they slashed themselves with swords and spears. This was their custom until their blood flowed. Um, midday passed. <laughs> and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Okay, we're out of time. Now, <laughs> I urge you to come back next week and let's finish this story. In the meanwhile, I do want to tell you just a couple of little uh, points. Um, hold on. We've got to get to the points to take home and then we've got to get out of here. Um, especially for people who have kids. Oh, man, I just blew it. Okay, points for home. Switch? Oh, well, see, y'all didn't even know I blew it. Thank you, Lewis. Points for home. Um, 
Number one, don't marry a Jezebel. Okay. Um, let's go back to this one. There's wisdom in taking counsel for wise men. There's foolishness in counsel of fools. Don't provoke God and thrust Him behind your back. Uh, you'll learn why being sullen and angry leads to no good next week. Um, uh, get rid of your sullenness. Get rid of your anger. It does not lead to good. It does not lead to good. You'll find out why next week. Don't marry a Jezebel. Live your life around the Lord and not around things. Uh, yeah, yeah. We'll get all the rest of that next week. Wait till you hear about Lord of the Flies. It's in here. Um, thank you all. I hope to see a bunch of you at lunch.